Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. week on PA Books, David Stewart, author of George Washington. Our guest today is David O. Stewart. He is the author of this book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. Uh, David Stewart, after spending so much time studying George Washington, if you could have been present for any moment in his life, what would you have wanted to see? You know, that's a great question. Uh, there are several pivotal moments that would have been uh, amazing to be there. One is when he makes the stand with his troops at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, which I, I wrote about. Um, another, of course, is when he uh, resigned from the Continental Army in 1783 and everybody dissolves in tears. Um, he had a gift for, um, uh, for quitting at the right time. and. Uh, they tended to be very emotional moments. So that that would be one. Uh, maybe also uh, when he uh, presided at the Constitutional Convention. I, it was such a big life with so many big moments. It's hard to pick. Well, when you were writing this, how did you decide what to focus on? I mean, you could write a book about any of a, a number of aspects of his life. You could, and you might never finish. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it is such a big life. I focused uh, early on his development as a political leader, because I thought that was the, a remarkable quality of his uh, leadership, which is often ignored. And he, he wasn't a natural. Um, he, he actually had to learn how to be a political leader and how to act effectively in the political sphere. Uh, and, and he did. But that was, that was work for him to figure that out. Um, and I wanted to focus on his early years, um, both because he had sort of a bumpy start. He had this one almost celestially successful experience as a 20-year-old. And then after that, um, he just confronted a variety of challenges during the French and Indian War that were too hard for him. Uh, he was a very young man. And he met a lot of failure and then withdrew. Uh, from military matters at about the age of 27 and reinvented himself as, uh, uh, you know, a farmer, uh, the squire of Mount Vernon, but also as a political person. And that took 16 years. You know, he was in the legislature. He was a lawmaker 16 years, five years longer than he served as a soldier. So I wanted to really focus on those eras and then look at um, some of his great political triumphs in his mature political years when he, you know, the deck was stacked against him and he really had to show extraordinary judgment and leadership. I mean, even Thomas Jefferson, who was not a huge fan of Washington's, said he had extraordinary judgment. Um, and, you know, frankly, Jefferson thought he wasn't all that smart, but he had a gift for making the right decision. And uh, so I, I took five moments in his uh, mature career as a political leader 
um, to highlight. Well, your subtitle is The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. Why did you decide to focus on that when there's so much in the military career? Uh, I suppose it's partly my own orientation. Uh, I'm not a military person, although I've always been fascinated by um, the stories that come out of com combat. But I, I, th I really did think um, people tend to overlook it. You know, we think of him as a... Uh, soldier, uh, a patriot, uh, a farmer, but uh, we don't think of him as a politician. And, you know, one of my conclusions was that shows you just how good he was, that people never thought of him as a politician. I mean, he, he was a, a schemer. He was capable of pulling strings and manipulating people and getting them to vote his way and cutting deals, and he did it very well. Um, but he mostly didn't get caught at it. And that, it, that's a gift. So he was a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, which is like the state legislature? Yes. And he was active? I mean, he, he got up and debated and he was on committees, things like that? Well, again, that's a great question. He uh, never liked debate. Um, he had a very mediocre education, just really three, maybe four years of formal education in a local school or maybe with a tutor. We don't even know that much. He never really spoke about it. He was so embarrassed about it. Uh, he educated himself through life. He was a uh, diligent reader and was always looking for something that would improve him that he could read. Uh, so when he got in the legislature, uh, he was overmatched. He was up against really remarkable political talents, people like Peyton Randolph and Richard Henry Lee, and as time went on, people like Jefferson and Patrick Henry. I mean, you, if you're going to debate with those guys, you better bring your A game. And he never did. He, he just didn't think he could play in that arena. So... For his first few years in the House of Burgesses, he's leaving a very faint footprint. And, you know, he's not that engaged either. He's, he doesn't show up sometimes. But as time goes on, he becomes much more engaged, and he begins to focus on his own talents. And, and I, this is a maturing process, which I think a lot of us go through, of f figuring out what are our assets, what are our weaknesses, how do we emphasize our assets, and how do we, you know— de-emphasize our weaknesses. And he was not going to get on the floor and, you know, chew the carpet and uh, give a two-hour stem winder of a speech. But if there was work to be done, he would step forward. He was—I I refer to him sometimes as the hardest-working man in colonial America. He, he worked 12- and 14-hour days his entire life. I, I think he was uncomfortable if he wasn't working a 12- or 14-hour day. And he had a gift for getting things done. Uh, and that became his hallmark as a, as a political figure. And they, the, his colleagues recognized that. And he slowly becomes a more and more central figure in the uh, House of Burgesses until his last three or four years, he's really a leader. And that's a, a huge transformation that he has achieved really um, by figuring out, uh, you know, a, a, a sphere of activity that was not a natural one for him, but he did master it. Well, he had quite a career before that, before his time in the House of Burgesses with uh, all his escapades in western Pennsylvania. How, how did he, as a young man, find himself in the middle of all that? 
Well, he was, uh, and there's no point putting too fine a point on it, uh, he was lucky. Um, he was born not to great wealth. Um, his father died when he was 11. His father had a lot of land, which he left to his two elder sons, who were George's half-brothers. George was the eldest of the um, uh, five younger children with uh, the second wife. Uh, and George inherited 300 acres, 11 uh, slaves, which he could hardly manage when he was 11 years old. His mother took over all of that, which was appropriate. Uh, and so he didn't have, you know, wealth to fall back on. What he did have, though, was an elder brother, 14 years older, uh, half-brother Lawrence, who was a, a comer. He was a, a high-achieving guy who was very ambitious um, and married into the Fairfax family, which was a really smart move. The Fairfaxes were the richest people in Virginia. They owned... Uh, most of Northern Virginia, and it was the equivalent of the state of New Hampshire. And they were next-door neighbors uh, to what becomes Mount Vernon. And so Lawrence is married into the family, and he brings by his younger brother, George, to meet the Fairfaxes. And it's clear Lawrence saw George as having the same talents he did and was hoping to sponsor him and serve as his mentor, which he clearly did. Um, and the Fairfaxes took a great shine to George. Um, he was an impressive young man. Uh, he was always large, <laughs> which helps. Uh, he was always extremely careful about his dress. Uh, he had wonderful manners and a great uh, ability to connect with people. And they were impressed with him. Um, and Lawrence then somewhat tragically, dies very young, in his early 30s, of tuberculosis. So Washington becomes the alpha male of the Washington clan, and he becomes this project of the Fairfaxes. And the Fairfaxes are the ones who get him these early assignments that help him rise within the colony he, and get him a, a, a military position, and before that, actually, a diplomatic position. And those are his opportunities, which are all courtesy of the Fairfaxes. Well, at the time he made his first big splash was the Jumonville Glen uh, Fort Necessity thing. Can you tell that story? Yeah, it's uh, he was supposed to. Uh, uh, he had run a, a led a diplomatic expedition and distinguished himself very highly, and he was then given a a military command, a very a small one. It was just uh, a couple of hundred go uh, soldiers, and that's all Virginia had at the time. It was not a warlike uh, uh, entity. Uh, and they were just sliding into this conflict, which becomes the French and Indian War. And he is uh, out on the frontier in areas he does know a little bit because he was a surveyor for the Fairfax lands, of course. And so he has some familiari familiarity with it. He is uh, very hardy, and, he, you know, he's a big, strong guy, and he, he can uh, make his way. Uh, and the French are sort of feeling out the British because the French want to move into this area. They're coming down from Canada. So he has Indian allies with him, 
and they go out looking for this the, this French contingent they've heard about, and they finally uh, they they walk through a night of rain. It, it sounds quite miserable, but the Indians find the French, and you know, in the woods, it was always true, and Washington always acknowledged that the Indians were much more competent than any white person. Uh, and they set up an ambush around the French camp. There were about 30 Frenchmen there. Uh, and at dawn, they attack. And there's a lot of competing versions of what happened. Um, but ultimately, it appears that uh, the French realized that they were in a terrible position and surrounded. And, and they do uh, surrender relatively quickly. Um, and then uh, the Indians, who are very angry with the French, um, proceed to uh, murder a number of the Frenchmen, including the leader of the uh, expedition, this fellow Jumonville. Uh, and it's usually pointed to as the beginning of the French and Indian War, because that was viewed as having uh, attacked a diplomatic mission. The French always insisted that it was a diplomatic mission. It wasn't a military mission. Well, there were 30 of them. They were hiding in the woods. They didn't come say hello to George. I mean, there's a lot of holes in their story. I'm kind of inclined to side with George on that question. Yeah, you say in your book that he has ample justification for attacking Jumonville's par uh, party. Yeah, I, I thought so. Um, the, you know, the, there's too many of them. A diplomatic mission is four or five people. It's not 30. And, you know, they didn't come and introduce themselves. They were hanging out, you know, five miles away and uh, for a few days, and they were sending reports back. And, you know, and Washington himself had run a diplomatic mission he basically gone by himself with a couple of Indian uh, escorts. So he could tell the difference, and I think he was right to. Uh, you know, there's, the political leaders need to tell the story they want to tell in order to justify um, going to war, and that's what the French did. Have you been to Jumonville Glen? Where this I have. Place? It's kind of a, a, a cool little place because, you know, not much has happened there since. It, it's a small place. Uh, and you can see the French had—I'm sure they picked a spot that was, you know, congenial f as a campsite, but it was terrible as a military—a uh, place to be defended militarily. They were very exposed. So it looks the same today as it looked then? As near as we can tell. Uh, you know, there's the, 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 the world has changed a lot. We've had a lot of people go out in search of natural resources that— uh, don't always leave the land the same way, but it, it absolutely looks the way it was described then. You, you write about all the, the different uh, aspects of uh, military uh, involvement that George Washington had early in his career about Jumonville Glen and Fort Necessity and the, the Braddock expedition and the Forbes expedition, and he, he does not have a, a stellar record in any of those. I mean, it's a, it's a record of lack of success. I mean, you say the Forbes only really succeeded because he ignored Washington's advice. Uh, yes. Uh, Washington's advice was to give up and go home. Uh, <laughs> so that wouldn't have worked. Uh, it wouldn't have been much success. Uh, They—he uh, was not—he uh, had no military training. I mean, he, he learned on the job. Uh, he was, you know, very young, and he had more responsibility, I think, than he was ready to really uh, manage successfully. Uh, so he had a number of— uh, 
un- unfortunate episodes where he he didn't behave very well. I, I mean, as a military leader, he, he he was not able to achieve his objective. The one thing that always stood out with Washington is his personal bravery, and especially in the Braddock expedition, which was one of the great catastrophes of British arms for a couple of centuries. It, it, you know, they lost two-thirds of their men as the casualties are, uh, are missing. Uh, it was a truly hideous uh, disaster. Um, and Washington was an aide to General Braddock. He was on, mounted on horseback, riding back and forth in the woods, um, carrying orders from the, the general to all the different officers who were getting killed. And Washington, after some three hours of battle, um, emerges without a scratch. How did he do that? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what people asked then, because, you know, he had bullet holes through his coat and, you know, he had a, a horse was shot out from under him. Uh, he was extraordinarily lucky. Um, he did write afterwards um, that, you know, Providence had taken him into its care, um, uh, clearly a reference to the supreme being. And uh, I think people then, certainly people who were at that battle, thought that might be true. Uh, it was amazing. Did he have mentors? He did. Um, his his brother in his early years, and then uh, Lord, uh, excuse me, Colonel Fairfax. There's a whole nest of Fairfaxes, but uh, Colonel Fairfax, who was the father of his brother's wife. Um, really was a mentor uh, who, who took him uh, under his wing. And there are times he, uh, he gives very gentle advice, but I think with Washington, that's all you needed to do. He was very sensitive to criticism. Um, and at one point, when Washington clearly had fought a battle he shouldn't have, um, uh, Colonel Fairfax writes him and says, you know, great generals often uh, have retreats that are not defeats. Uh, which is a, 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 a good way to try to get your point across. Um, as he gets older, he doesn't really take on mentors, but he allies himself with people who will fill in sort of the gaps in his own talents. And you see that repeatedly. Uh, he, before the Revolutionary War, he allies himself with George Mason, who's another neighbor, actually, who's a very intelligent and well-educated uh, and, and, and a good political thinker who can write things. And George was never comfortable with his own writing. Uh, after the war, it's James Madison who becomes the fellow who um, he, he, he relies on so heavily to uh, provide that kind of support. And then and when he becomes president, uh, you see Hamilton step into that role more. Uh, Madison continues for a year or two, but then they have political fallout. And it's really Hamilton who steps into that position. So he, he's much more his own person, but he does recognize that there are things he doesn't do as well as other people, and so he wants to find people who can do those things well. When the rebellion came along, why did he decide to side with the, the rebels against the British? You know, Washington was not a confessional kind of guy who said, you know, I, I've always been angry about this and, you know, 
is stuck in my cross, so therefore I did that. Um, you can look at his path, though, and he was uh, someone who had tried to make it in the British establishment, in the British military establishment specifically, and they had no interest in him. Uh, he was a, a yokel, a, a colonial, as far as they were concerned, and not someone that they would have any uh, place for. Uh, and uh, that's something you can see building resentment. Uh, as a farmer and a planter in, uh, at Mount Vernon, he has terrible uh, spats with the British merchants he does business with. Most of his crops go through British merchants for the first half of that career, that part of his career. And he's always angry about their cheating him, or they're sending him substandard stuff. And he's not alone. The, the Virginia uh, uh, people, uh, the, the wealthy Virginians who were doing business with the British all complained about that. But uh, uh, Washington was angry about that as well. But I do think you have to see this as, or his instinct and willingness to join the rebellion, which happens quite early. He's implacable in his hostility to the British in the late 1760s. You know, this is, you know, six, five, six years before we're really in the struggle. Um, and he says he's willing to go to war. Uh, so I think you have to see that also as a, you know, a sense of I'm an American and they are don't understand me, they don't understand us, and we should not be subservient to them. And that, I think, is what's happening inside him. It's not a, you know, a diligently thought out thing. I think it's just who he is. Could the British have spared themselves a lot of grief by just accepting him into the British Army? <laughs> It, it's one of those wonderful what-ifs, you know, what if George Washington had been the commander of the British uh, Army that uh, came to Boston to suppress the, the rebellion up there? Uh, you know, he, he was trying to do that. He, he wanted that position. Now, I think the British Army at the time did not accept them because, you know, they just—it was an incredibly class-based system. You had to buy your positions, usually, your, your officer— uh, positions and Washington could never do that. He never had that kind of cash. Uh, so, you know, it's a very extravagant hypothetical. Um, would he have been a, a very effective British general? Uh, I, I think they, they never would have accepted him and never would have given him much responsibility. So, uh, it, I, I don't see that as something that was going to happen. So Washington went to both Continental Congresses. You write about that. And the Second Continental Congress is that he shows up in uniform and they have to decide who to put in charge of the army and they pick the guy who's in the uniform already. <laughs> Why did he want that position? Well, he wanted to fight. There's no argument. I mean, there's no way. He, he wanted to resist the British. And at that point, and this is uh, the first half of 1775, you know, when they pick him to be commander-in-chief, you know, Lexington and Concord have happened. Bunker Hill has happened. I mean, it, we're fighting. 
Uh, and he wants to be part of that. He has had a lust to be a soldier since he was a boy. His elder brother Lawrence had been a soldier, and, you know, he had fought during the French and Indian War, although not with a tremendous success. Uh, so he wanted to be part of that, and he wanted to be part of resisting the British. And a critical part of his psyche to me is— and he says this numerous times in his life, so we're not really stretching anything. He cared so much about his reputation and his stature in the world. And, you know, as a young man, he says, all I care about is what other people think of me. And it's important not to see that as a, a shallow thing, as the sort of thing, you know, that in modern terms, maybe a, a celebrity influencer on TikTok or a Kardashian or something like that. For him, that meant people knew who he was and thought well of him because he deserved it, because he had earned it, because he was worthy. And in that era, and you see this with, with others, like Hamilton, who is incredibly sensitive about his reputation, uh, and, and a number of them, that was a focus. And for him, it really was everything. He was incredibly sensitive about criticism. Uh, he, he, when he made mistakes, it was clear he understood that he made mistakes and he tried to fix them. But you got to look really hard to find any occasion when he said, oh, I made a mistake. He doesn't do that because he doesn't want to have to admit to failure. So that was a key part of him. And if there was going to be this big event, this rebellion, and if he believed that the Americans should be fighting, well, then he would be thought ill of if he wasn't in the center of it. And when he t accepts the position, he writes to his, his wife, Martha, from Philadelphia, you know, saying, I know this is going to be hard for you because I'll be away so much, and I, that's the one reason I might not have done that. But you would not want to be married—excuse <clears throat> me, you would not want to be married to a man who did not answer this call. And, and that was his worldview. This—it it was literally unthinkable that he would not accept responsibility in a cause that he cared about. Did he see it as a route to personal glory? I'm uncomfortable with the term glory because, you know, he, he was not a guy who uh, loved the adulation of crowds or, uh, you know, hung around to cling to power, which is what you think about, you know. And there are a lot of soldiers who have become dictators and tyrants because they could. And Washington could have done that, probably. But he didn't. He went home. Uh, so I don't think of it as glory, but he, distinction was terribly important to him. He wanted to do great things. Uh, and so, yes, that was important to him. Why did the Continental Congress pick him? I mean, he didn't have a great track record. There were other generals. Well, they weren't very good. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a few factors, and they all pointed to Washington. One was, you know, our talent pool for military figures was quite shallow. Uh, and they, I think they, the congressional delegates knew they had to pick an, 
American-born person. There were a couple of candidates who were really British people who had emigrated, and they'd been in the British Army. Uh, so they had military training and probably good experience, but they were not—it just wasn't the right face of the, of the revolution. Uh, and then there was this other political factor which did work for him, um, which was it was really a New England army that had assembled outside of Boston, and there was concern that this would end up being a regional rebellion, and you needed to tie in the rest of the colonies. And Virginia was the largest colony, and here's this guy from Virginia. So that was a, a, a good sectional uh, uniter. Uh, and then, to be honest, uh, it, it was weird to me that he would show up wearing a uniform. It was his, his old Virginia militia uniform. Uh, and as I write in the book, it's a little like someone who shows up at your party with a guitar and really wants <laughs> to be asked to you know, sing a song. Um, but his colleagues didn't seem to react to it that way. They. Uh, nobody writes home, you know, there's this big galoot from Virginia who's walking around in a uniform. I just don't understand what he's doing. They all write these really quite uh, fawning letters about what a great guy he is. So I think we also need to give him some credit for his ability to connect with people, to show leadership. He led a lot of the military preparations in the Second Continental Congress, which does pick him as commander-in-chief, and people had a chance to see him work. And I want to come back to that. The guy worked. He always worked hard, and he got things done. And, you know, that's, that's a quality that is not universal in the world. It's sometimes a little thin on the ground. And he had it, and people valued it. So the, the uh, Continental Congress picks him. Okay, you're our guy. You're in charge of the Army. And he walks out the door. Where does he go? Well, he assembles his his generals, uh, none of whom will survive the war as generals, because they were a rather mixed cr crowd, and they, they ride to Boston. Um, and it's, it's like a royal pr progression. Uh, he is uh, acclaimed uh, in town after town, and it's a remarkable achievement, because this is before TV, this is before radio, this is before—there's a lot of newspapers. There's just a few newspapers in the cities. But somehow, he has become the man for that moment. And uh, he's modest whenever he has to address some gathering of dignitaries who present a proclamation to him. He, he, he doesn't preen. He doesn't give stirring speeches. He says, we're going to do the best we can. And in New York, there's a big confrontation where they are concerned that, you know, he's going to try to become some a military dictator type. And he says, we do not become—when we become the soldier, we do not forget—leave behind the citizen. Um, so he was re reassuring people that, you know, I'm just—I'm just here to deal with this problem. Which is what he did. When he got to Boston, how did he get everybody to, to, to rally around him and recognize, okay, well, you're the guy, we'll follow you? It's a hard thing to unpack. Um, his manner always, as a mature leader, was uh, restrained. Uh, he was occasionally called aloof, although 
I found a surprising number of references to him as being affable. I think he was actually good company. Um, and he had a willingness to listen. And that is so valuable in a political leader because, you know, folks love to be listened to, um, especially, you know, political and military types. And he would. And he was interested in what people had to say. He wanted to learn. He always was open to advice. Uh, and he would always, in addition, reserve the right to make his own decision. So it's that process. And it's, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, he shows up there. He's a very different guy from the New Englanders. We don't even appreciate it much these days, but they, sometimes they had trouble understanding each other. Their dialects were so different. Their pronunciation was so different. Um, he shows up with his slave, and, you know, that's not, not done a whole lot in Massachusetts at that time. Uh, and he's got to, you know, show the way. And it, it, it's a matter of months. It takes a while. And he begins to assemble his own staff of men he finds he can rely on. And he promotes a lot of people who are not prominent beforehand, but whom he, he thinks are able and will do the things that need to be done. Men like Henry Knox and Nathaniel Green, who just from ordinary middle-class backgrounds, uh, and they end up eclipsing a lot of the aristocratic or political leaders who thought they were going to lead um, the, re the revolutionary effort. Why were the rank-and-file soldiers loyal to him? Like at Valley Forge, why did they stick around, the, the ones who stayed with him? Well, you know, that's, a, that's such a hard question. Uh, I think we have to give them credit for believing in the cause, the cause of liberty, which... Um, meant a great deal to them. Uh, and they were often soldier—very—people uh, very, from very humble backgrounds and did not have great opportunities at home. But I think their feeling about Washington was—reflected uh, his ability to strike a great mix or a great balance, because he was always beautifully mounted, beautifully dressed, behaved with perfect dignity. So he held himself, and I don't mean this in a sort of aristocratic way, but he held himself in a way that distinguished him from the run-of-the-mill folks there. But they also knew he cared about them. Every day at Valley Forge, he rode through the camp. You know, and if there was a horse carcass in front of Hut 33, he told somebody to get it out of there. And if he saw guys with scabies, he would ask, you know, what are we doing for these people? And there was only so much he could do. Um, the suffering from that encampment was just horrible. But they knew that he was there. He stayed there the whole time. He never left Valley Forge. And... He was trying, and he cared, and I, I think that meant something to them. For all that he went through, why, why, was he, why did he put up with uh, taking directions from the Continental Congress instead of saying, I'm in charge? It's 
one of the great things about George Washington, and there are several, but one of them is he acknowledged uh, that the sovereignty of the nation lay in Congress. And it's important for us to remember that, you know, here you've got these 13 colonies. Lots of—several of them have had nothing to do with others of them. You know, the people from Georgia certainly don't know the people from New Hampshire. Um, but they are— trying to ha create national institutions. And there are only two national institutions. There's Congress and there's the Continental Army. Otherwise, you know, they're just uh, colonies and then they make themselves states. Uh, and those institutions have to get along. And Washington, from the very beginning, says—and he says it when he accepts the position as commander-in-chief. I will do what you tell me to. Uh, and he always told them what he thought he should be doing and what he thought they should be doing, to be honest. But when they gave him a direction, he followed it. And that was part of the greatness of Washington as the leader of a society that wanted to be a democracy, that wanted to be a republic, was he was willing to say, Sure, I'm in charge of the army, but the people speak through the legislature, through the Congress, and I take my orders from them. And, you know, it's a model that has been established for this country, and we've been blessed with it uh, for almost two and a half centuries. You do write that um, Washington imposed harsh discipline on a single day in late July. A court-martial handed out 10 death sentences, directed that four men receive 1,500 lashes and ordered 1,000 lashes for four others. In August, he hanged two frequent deserters. So he was no pushover. No, I, that's during the French and Indian War, isn't it? Oh, it must have been, because it's a little earlier in your book. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the British uh, <laughs> believed in punishment, and Washington did, too. Uh, when there are mutineers uh, in uh, 1782, near the end of the war, there, he has trouble with soldiers who are unpaid and disgruntled, and they're not eating well, and they're unhappy. And uh, when they raise—rise uh, in arms against the, the army, he sends troops to put down the mutiny, and some people get hanged. And he, he did not regret that. Um, that's how you keep uh, an army under control. Uh, you know, to create an armed force, you know, legitimized violence uh, is what an army is. Um, you've got to control that, or they can turn on their own people. And uh, it, it's not always pretty, um, but uh, he, he, he did believe in uh, ke keeping the soldiers under control. You're right about how he his support in the among the generals and in the Continental Congress was not universal. I mean, there are people who did not like him and wanted him to be replaced. And you read about the Conway Cabal, if you would talk about that. And how did he survive all that? He was very smart throughout the the war about understanding that he needed allies in Congress and he needed to have friends uh, in state governor's positions and even in local government, because he was always at the mercy of the uh, local people for 
food, for supplies, just for, you know, to, to not be disloyal, to not act as British spies. Uh, so he, he, he spent as much time on political issues as a general as he did on uh, military issues. And he was very careful about figuring out who in Congress could be effective for him. Uh, you referred to the Conway cabal, which I do write about at some length. Uh, it's this period after the Battle of Saratoga when the, Washington has his part of the Continental Army at Valley Forge suffering terribly. And Gates has won, General Horatio Gates has won this amazing victory up in uh, upstate New York. And there's people who say, well, yeah, gee, why don't we use Gates? Wouldn't he be better than Washington? Uh, and Washington has to survive that. And he does it uh, deftly uh, through some very subtle maneuvers. But one of the, the least subtle, to be honest, is he hires or, or promotes as one of his aides um, the son of the man who's president of Congress, uh, Henry Lawrence. And his son, John, is the one who's Washington's aide. And he and Henry Lawrence form a terrific partnership. Um, and they don't spend any time together that we can find. But through understanding what the other was doing and through very frank letters uh, back and forth, uh, they form a very powerful partnership which helps uh, put off this effort to promote Gates. And then, frankly, the people who are trying to promote Gates end up uh, fouling their own nest and uh, sort of tripping over their own feet. At the start of this program, you said one of the scenes you would have liked to witness was the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. What was it that happened there that uh, so impressed you? Uh, it's not a beautiful battle in, in the way that, you know, a military strategist would draw up a battle. Uh, Arguably, Washington did not exercise sufficient control over his uh, immediate subordinates, Lafayette and Charles Lee, in some ways. Uh, and on the morning of what turned out to be the battle, and we, Washington needed a victory. He had gone through 17—he was 0 for 1777. <laughs> he had won nothing, um, which was part of the problem in dealing with this threat from uh, about promoting Gates over him. Uh, and he needed a win. But he knew that if he took on all of the British forces that who were crossing New Jersey at the time, that they would beat him, because there were too many of them and they were better soldiers than the Americans were. So he needed to fight part of them. That's what he needed, was a half battle, basically. Uh, and so he sent out Charles Lee to try to, you know, make that happen. He doesn't give him terribly good instruction. Lee is not interested in doing it, frankly. He's not a very uh, uh, dutiful subordinate. And for five or six hours, uh, several units of the Army just sort of wander around in this stifling heat. And then the British realize that the Americans are messing up, and they turn. And a portion of the British Army turns back to attack the Americans. So now Washington ineptly <laughs> has managed to get the fight he wants, which is against a chunk of the army, British army, but not all of it. And he comes upon the Americans under Lee withdrawing and 
some disorder. And in about 15 minutes, he, he's able to look over the lay of the land, pick out the best spot to be, make his dispositions, send his tr uh, different units in different directions, and set himself up for the win he needs. And the battle, the, the real fighting probably takes, I don't know, less than an hour. Uh, the British attack uphill, which is always a dumb thing to do, <laughs> or you're going to suffer for it, um, and they fail. And then there's an artillery duel, and Washington has managed in this split-second moment to seize an opportunity and play it perfectly. And he, he's on his white horse during the battle, and he's exposing some, himself to enemy fire, as he always did. Um, and Hamilton says, you know, he showed himself to best advantage that he ever did. And I just think that would have been a stirring moment, and it was a stirring moment for all of his soldiers. How did he manage to win the war after losing all those battles? <laughs> uh, a lot of it was outlasting the other side. I think, you know, in the 20th and 21st centuries, we've become familiar with the fact that uh, if you have a foreign army in your country and you don't give up, um, after enough years, uh, you don't really have to beat them. It becomes too expensive and too hard and too stupid for them to hang around. So that was a factor. Um, he does finally win a great win at Yorktown, which is important. And, you know, the key moment really is when the French enter the war. Uh, we tend to not give the French as much credit as we should. Um, they were uh, a, a real adversary for the British for centuries, and they fought in the Caribbean principally. That, that's where all the wealth was with the sugar production in the Caribbean islands. Um, they fought all across the globe, and the British then had a, a real fight on their hands that was more than they wanted to be—wanted to have. So that's how we win Yorktown, is it's coordinating with French forces. And when that happens, as near as we can tell, British support for the war just evaporates. And, you know, the political leaders, the people in Britain, just basically say, we're done. We're not going to keep doing this. It takes two years to actually sign a peace, but that's, that's the process. We've had guests on this program talk about Dwight Eisenhower and said uh, he was not necessarily a great battlefield general, but he was a great political general. Could you say the same thing about Washington? You could. Uh, I think there were kinds of battlefield moments he was great at the one I described at Monmouth. Uh, and uh, he had his moments. Uh, and, you know, at Yorktown, he did win that battle. I mean, he, he gets credit for that. He won and, and captured an entire uh, British army. Uh, I, I think he did have—and, you know, Trenton and Princeton were, were great victories. Uh, he did have some bad losses. Um, he didn't have the best soldiers, to be honest, and he had a tendency to 
a weakness for a complicated plan. And you do see in a number of his battles that he's got far too complicated a plan, and it, it, it doesn't work. Uh, and, and there's a saying in military circles that, you know, the strategy holds until the first uh, gun is fired, and then, it, you know, it's all, it's all improvisation. So I, I think that was uh, part of the trouble. Um, but, you know, he did win the war. <laughs> you, you get credit for that. Yeah, you mentioned something earlier that we have to talk about, and that is you said that when Washington went up to Boston and was in charge of the army, he brought a slave with him. What was his view of slavery? Uh, it was a hard thing to study with Washington because until he becomes commander-in-chief, and he's 43, he is a mature human being. He's been on the earth a long time. He owns a lot of slaves, more than 100. Uh, and there is just no trace of him having any regret or doubts or unhappiness with slavery to that stage. Um, and that seems wrong. Uh, you know, you look at other slaveholders of that era, they at least had the good grace to be embarrassed about it or to r recognize that there was something wrong with the system and they should try to fix it. And he doesn't. Uh, in the war, his attitudes do change. I think some of it is, or a good deal of it, is because he has black soldiers. And these men are suffering and fighting and dying for his liberty. And I think he just can't deny that the notion that he owns them is, is, is a crime. Uh, so that is, is a change uh, in him that we can see. After the war, he goes through a stage where he resolves and instructs his plantation manager that he wants to uh, essentially be a good slave owner and not break up families and that sort of thing. And I think he, in a year or two, he realizes that that, you know, a good slave owner is an oxymoron, that there is no such thing. And he spends about the last 10 years of his life trying to figure out a way to get himself personally out of the slave-owning business. Uh, he never speaks publicly against slavery, although he says privately, repeatedly, I would dearly wish that it uh, stop being a factor in our lives, that there should be no slave, uh, slavery in this country. But he won't say it publicly, and clearly he thought if he did, it would be ineffective and it would undermine his political standing uh, and would uh, be divisive, that the Union could not survive an argument over slavery. And he was not alone in that judgment. Uh, they'd had that argument over slavery at the Constitutional Convention. The Southern, the people from the Deep South had threatened to walk out, uh, and that sort of threat was made routinely. Uh, Washington had lived with slave owners his whole life. He knew them. He knew just how stiff-necked and uh, unreasonable they could be. So he was never willing to do that in public, which was a loss. Um, he was our greatest leader, and he was silent. Uh, he did 
try to figure out a way to change his own slaveholding, which was really complicated by the fact he owned a bunch of slaves himself, but he also acquired a bunch from when his, he married his wife, Martha Custis, who had whose first husband, she'd been married for several years, uh, and her first husband died, uh, and he'd been a very rich man, and so she uh, inherited from him a lot of slaves, except she really just held them in trust for what became her grandchildren. So Washington couldn't control those people. He did not have power to do it legally. So he didn't so free his he slaves? He had to buy on, them. He, did he free his slaves on his death? He freed his own slaves on his deathbed. He could not free the Custis slaves, um, and that was a great regret for him because he knew they had intermarried with his own slaves. And you're talking about, I don't know, maybe 130 that he owned himself and another 180 that were Custis slaves. It was a lot of people. But he did free his own slaves, and uh, with the condition that they not be freed until Martha died, she didn't like living with a lot of people around her who wanted her dead. <laughs> this was an uncomfortable thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it was not unheard of for slaves to poison their masters, which was really behind this. So she directed that the Washington slaves be uh, freed in her lifetime, and they were. Um, when Washington—you wrote about uh, your previous book, you were on this program for the Constitutional Convention, but when Washington resigned the Army and before the Constitution, Constitutional Convention, when he went home after resigning the Army, did he think he was done? I think he did. Uh, I think he wanted to be done. Uh, there's one wonderful letter he writes uh, about a year after he gets home when somebody is moaning and groaning about how badly the states are acting, they're fighting with each other, and Congress can't get anything done. And Washington writes, well, they're like—we are like a young heir who comes into his money before he's really ready to uh, manage it, but after a short period of time, we'll grow into the role. <coughs> Pardon me. And we didn't. <laughs> and, and after another year, uh, he, he, I think he clearly decided that, actually, under the Articles of Confederation, which was a very loose uh, form of government, that we were never going to become a true nation and that we did need uh, a different organization for the nation. And that—and he began to support—and and he was being urged to do this by Hamilton—I'm sorry, by Madison in particular. <coughs> and he became a— uh, uh, the, the key figure at the Constitutional Convention. When he was in retirement back at Valley Forge, either <laughs> after he re resigned from the Army or, or after he left the presidency, did he keep following the news? Did he stay engaged? Yes. Uh, the, the night before he dies or, or, or gets sick, um, uh, one of the things he does is he—and he would do many nights uh, at Mount Vernon—is uh, he reads out loud uh, excerpts from the newspaper. Uh, I think they happen to be about James Monroe, and he—at he, this point in his career, he, he didn't have a very high opinion of Monroe, and he was sort of chortling and making fun of Monroe uh, and this report. Uh, 
so yeah, I mean, his his interest in uh, affairs continued. He he did not try to dabble in them when Adams uh, John Adams becomes president after him. Uh, Washington really does not comment on public affairs that are going on. Uh, he is drawn in. Uh, there's this quasi-war potentially against the French at that point, the revolutionary French. Uh, and he's drawn in potentially to be a military figure again, but luckily that never really comes to fruition. Well, he was president for eight years, and we won't have any time to talk about that. But um, when, when you look around America today, what is the way it is specifically because of George Washington? Uh, I think almost all of it. Uh, he modeled what we expect from a political leader. It's not what we get, but his ability to strike a posture of impartiality. And, you know, he was—he had his political views. He, he wasn't totally nonpartisan, but people trusted him. Uh, they always had the confidence that he would make his best decision. At one point in his presidency, there's a lot of controversy, and he says in a public statement, I will read the Constitution against this development, and I will decide based solely on the Constitution what should be done. And it, it almost sounds like pablum to us today, but it was very persuasive back then and reassured a great many people. And we'd really like someone who could put that across, <laughs> who could tell us that, and we would believe it. Uh, and so I think that is what we long for and what we look for. And I think that we have lasted so long has in many ways been the result of his tradition, the, the traditions he set, the tone that he set, the deliberative style that he set. And I think if we're going to continue to thrive, his model will continue to be incredibly powerful and incredibly important. We could spend all day talking about George Washington, but unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been speaking with David O. Stewart. He is the author of this book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.